So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, y'all. So let me begin today's episode with a heartfelt suggestion. Get you some tissues. Today, we are having a very crucial conversation about a topic that, well, in truth, today's topic isn't really talked about in the world of pediatric speech pathology because it is so brutally hard. Today, we're talking about grief, okay? So personally, I have had several seasons of grief over my brief almost 38 years. I battled grief when my parents had a tumultuous divorce when I was a small child. I battled grief and shame when I went through my own violently abusive marriage and divorce from my ex-husband. I went through grief when I lost my grandma who raised me. I went through grief when I struggled with preterm labor and complications with both our sons and we didn't know if we'd be able to carry him. I've gone through grief when I have lost patience to their complex medical history. And those are just a few seasons in my life. And please know while there have been these valleys, there have been so many, many more beautiful, breathtaking mountaintop moments. But y'all, the grief in one shape or stage can come back in surprising ways and trickle over into my clinical care. So let me explain. For almost the last year, thanks to social distancing from this pandemic, 
I've had the pleasure of working with a highly energetic little guy via Zoom. Y'all, we've been doing feeding therapy for months via teletherapy. And just a few weeks ago, I had my first chance to transition to face-to-face -face sessions. And I was ecstatic. I typed the address into my phone's GPS and it looked vaguely familiar. Like I had this nagging sensation in the back of my head, but like I just, I couldn't place it. On the way there, the memories came flooding back and with every turn, it triggered a little bit more heartache. And y'all, when I finally arrived at the address, it was just a handful of doors down from another home that I used to visit once a week several years ago until the sweet little boy in that home passed unexpectedly but peacefully in his sleep from his condition. And I had to collect myself in the car before I could go in and be the feeding therapist that my um, high energy, high volume little guy needed. And I am not gonna lie, I straight up ugly cried after the session because it just brought back so many emotions of that little guy that I worked with. So here's the deal. When we work with the little ones that have complex medical needs, often these patients are in palliative care but occasionally they're moved to hospice and we are there clinically to assess the integrity of the swallow, to make quality of life, pleasure feeding diet recommendations and to assist with functional communication right up until the end. And y'all grad school did not prepare me for this. It did not prepare me for grief, what it is and how to handle it. That was, that was barely covered because these cases are typically an exception to the rule with respect to the peds patients that we evaluate and treat. So we're having the conversation today. And our guest today, Mr. Um, Monty Torkelson, president at Abba's Child Grief Camps, and Lisa, oh, Lisa, Bieland? Yes. Yes, whew, yes. I'm sweating. <laughs> Bieland, MSW, PsyD, trauma therapist with Abba's Child Grief Camps. They're here, and these two amazing humans have the unique ability to hold these conversations with heartbroken families, and they're here to help offer all of us pediatric SLPs successful strategies to help navigate grief and caregiver fatigue, even on our own end, so that we are properly equipped to help those that we have been called to serve. So. Whoo, that's a lot. This is a lot to cover and unpacked, I think is the word, not impact, but unpacked. So Monty and Lisa, thank you so much for coming today, y'all. Oh, we're happy to be here. Yeah, thank <laughs> you for inviting us. Absolutely. Okay, so that's that's a big intro. So um, I, I came across Abba's Child because um, my sweet friend Darla, who um, the lovely Monty is married to, um, she shared this amazing post on Facebook land about the foundation of Abba's Child Grief Camps. And I was like, oh my stars, I know so many, so many people that could use this. And so I like rapid fire, like texted Darla and was like, can you please introduce me to your husband? <laughs> So Monty, let's start with you. How, what, what is your calling in this world and how did you get to be president of a pediatric grief camp? Well, I guess my calling has been uh, pastoral ministry. I was trained to be a pastor and quickly uh, found myself involved in youth ministry and working with kids, which then led me to be a regional youth leader in the state of Oregon. And part of that job description was to be the director of a youth camp, a summer youth camp. Actually, uh, I guess the youth camp portion of it was just the summer. The camp itself operated year round. And that was 15 years of my career. And actually, during that time, uh, Darla and I had a conversation um, after reading through some Bible passages uh, that led us to ask the question, how can we help widows and orphans today? Um, the Bible is pretty clear. Jesus' words are pretty clear that he focuses in on those two populations and says, take care of the widows and the orphans. And, you know, how do we do that? Because we hardly know who they are sometimes. And with our, with my current job at the time, we had this I believe 
God-led idea to say, well, what if we could identify grieving children in our community and invite them to come to camp for a week and bring up some counselors or therapists that are uh, comfortable working with young people and grieving young people and let them spend a week together enjoying camp as well as spending time in supportive, important conversations and activities to hopefully, uh, hopefully move them down the path of a healthy grieving process. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So now, Lisa, how did you get called into all of this? Well, I had been practicing in the field of social work and trauma work um, since the late 80s, and I knew Monty from college, and he um, called and said, would you be interested in assisting me as the therapist in working with, you know, these kids that have lost loved ones? And so I'm like, sure. So that's been something I've been doing throughout the summers now for over 10 years. And, and prior to that, I'd worked a lot with grief. And as a practitioner, you know, working with kids with all different flavors of diagnoses, helping them <clears throat> manage the multiple griefs that they have, and then the way that they, you know, respond to the grief in their life through acting out or through multiple of ways. So, Yeah. I've enjoyed it. It's been a blessing to be able to, you know, help and be part of this journey. And I, I have a strong belief that, you know, God gives special comfort to the comforters. So when you said the that, you know, you've had a lot of valleys, but you've had a lot of mountaintops. I mean, that really resonates with me. And that's, you know, that is kind of what I want when I'm working with children and adults is to know that there are times where, you know, your book of your life, this page is really, really painful. And you want to just take that, you know, page out, but you can turn the page and you can turn the chapter and you have so much more of your story, but it's getting through those pages that are so painful in your life book. And, you know, that's, I don't know. It's just something beautiful to assist people in that type of healing. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. See, this is why I said, get the tissues ready. This is yes. Yes. It is. And, and so that's, I have, I have struggled professionally over the years as my clinic. I mean, I didn't start out wanting to work with pediatrics. I, humbly suggest that children are gross. They pick their noses and eat it. I have had that conversation with my own. <laughs> so, um, but over the course of my career, I kept getting more complex cases, more challenging cases. They kept finding me, right? So over the last 15 years now, 10, 15 years, it's, it's evolved into... I get the call for the cases that are palliative care, the cases that will transition to hospice. And I, I mean, I, I took the CEU courses, I took for um, end of life care for Alzheimer's dementia once upon a time when I was inpatient working at a hospital. But while they gave me the, the science piece that caregiver emotional intelligence piece, recognizing what the different stages of grief looked like and my caregivers, recognizing what that looked like even within myself so that I was making sure that I was making the sound clinical decision when I was delivering services. I've had to work and grow that, right? And, and, and that's hard because we do as practitioners fall in love with the little ones, right? You, you, you can't help, especially when they're teeny tiny and you're working on a good suck on a bottle or, or helping the nurse. And that's, those are such intimate moments with a family. So, um, all right. So then let's take it from the top and then could you kind of outline what the different st cycles or stages of grief are and then how to like recognize the seasons of grief? Sure. You know, grief, we would, 
we'd like it to be really organized and for us to be able to say, okay, first I'm going to feel anger and then I'm going to feel sadness. And then I'm going to feel, I mean, a whole range of emotions. And the reality is they come in the order that they just come in. We cannot profess or think that it's going to be, I know there is a list and that list often is what we teach kids, you know, but the reality is what I would call it. Yes. But the reality is it just comes when it comes, you know, and I, in my own personal life with the losses that I've had, you know, one day I'll be just totally fine. And the next day I'm like, you know what, today's a mental health day. I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to do things that nurture myself. And so as a provider, you know, when you are brought into a family, you become at the end of their life, you are part of their family. And speaking to my grandmother before she passed away, because um, she passed away this last year, her providers that were coming in there, she would tell me everything that they said. And she hung on to those words so much because to her, it was like an hour of someone that's there to take care of her when she has a really hard time going on. And so, you know, when you described how, you know, you had those triggers when you went into the last, uh, this house that you went into because you had had a grief. We do not know when those triggers are going to come up. And so we have to be prepared for that. But back to my grandmother, now I'm back on track. Sorry about that. (laughs) My grandmother, you know, she really started to see those practitioners as family, you know, and she Um, She just would say, I love them. And so you take, she's an elderly person. You take a child who is scared, vulnerable, maybe not even able to describe going through all these feelings, not understanding what even loss maybe means. And you're put in there to be their bright spot, to be their light sometimes when, and to be the family's light. And that's a, a really a high energy kind of thing to do, but it's not like you go in with high energy, but that they would maybe see, but it's like, okay, I got to get my game on. I'm going in, but realizing that you are human and that we, we sometimes honor people with our tears as well. And so there's nothing wrong. You know, yes, we try to hold it, but sometimes we just can't, it just comes out. And, you know, knowing that, oh, it's not your job to take care of me, but I'm, I'm here and I'm feeling and And I want you to know that you are so important, you know, because we're all on this journey of life and every one of us is going to face death at different times. And of course, this season is with COVID and with so much loss and so much isolation, the grief and the isolation is just huge. I mean, we're coming up, sorry, next week will be the, um, because today's what, the 3rd of March. And so I think in 10 days will be because it was Friday the 13th. I totally take credit for causing the shutdown in South Carolina. I got my husband to a ballet on a Friday the 13th. So this is my doing in South Carolina, but, but, um, it's, it is, there has been so much loss on in the world of speech pathology because we are as a profession treating inpatient we are, it is our fathers, our husbands, our, our, our extended family that's passing. I've had dear friends that work down at MUSC in Charleston that their complex pediatric patients have had strokes. One of, one of my own patients went in for an airway surgery. The mother contracted COVID while they were in with the surgery. And then the baby she was carrying had an intrauterine CVA as a complication from the mother having COVID. It's, we are a year into being consumed by this grief. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm tired and I really cannot afford to stress eat carbs anymore because my stretchy pants is a little tight. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Can you tell that laughter is my coping mechanism? I feel like now you're analyzing me. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. 
Yes. And, you know, seizing on those moments of beauty, of laughter. One of the things I'm always telling my patients, if you see something that's glorious, you know, you stop, you look at it, you soak it in. We are so right now consumed with everything else that if there is a rose that's there, stop and smell it. If there is a sunset there, stop and breathe it in and feel it. You know, if you're walking in the sand, feel that sand under your feet, you know, try to connect with in a, in a totally, you know, full way, in a full bright way with things around you. Cause that's really how we get through things. Mm-hmm. Yes. And do you have tips? Okay. So y'all the, the stages of grief that we learned, it's a list and it makes it look like it's, um, is it Kubler-Ross stages yes. of grief? I remembered mm-hmm. it. Yes. Kubler-Ross stages of grief. And I, learned about it in a special education class in undergrad. And my professor, the way he taught it, it made it sound like it was sequential, that you moved forward from one to the next in your own time, but that you moved through all, was it seven stages? Yeah. And then he he explained some, I mean, he, there's the man talking to a bunch of 19 and 20 year old ladies, right? Like bless them, because that very brave man. And, and he was like, sometimes you slip back in them, but you know, otherwise you just move along the list. And that is, that is a drastic misrepresentation of that. And then as I have gone through the grief cycles, just what you mentioned, the triggers and you hit a trigger and you don't foresee the trigger coming. And then all of a sudden you're like in flashback mode. Yes. So how can you, do you have tips for triggers or how to feel those triggers? Because for a lot of us that are treating, it's typically brought on by the loss of another patient or the, like that's a, that's a excellent thing. Well, when I, uh, when there's a trigger that comes up, I recommend people to, you know, like stop, kind of figure out what it's connected to and um, know that it's going to pass, but you got to allow your body because in your amygdala and your hippocampus, you know, a trigger went in and it's like, oh yes, I remember this. And so you will feel, taste, smell, everything, you know, that, that moment remembers, you know, and so it's like, man, this is so strong. So you got to allow your body to heal and even think about the person you were when that trigger happened or when that event happened. And one therapeutic technique I use when you get a trigger that's really strong, I just think of whatever age, you know, whatever age you were, like, how old were you when that trigger happened? I mean, when you um, had that event happen. Uh, When the little boy passed. Yeah. that was, um, bear was potty training. So this was four years ago. Okay. So, so I was, I was, I was 34. <laughs> Sorry, quick math. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. So one technique I teach people is the adult you are now to speak to that girl you were then and tell her what she needs to hear based on your experience now. Mm. Does this make mm. sense? Like you are strong, you are gonna get through this. I know that was super duper hard. You did beautiful work, you know, be gentle with yourself, give grace. These are all things, and I know you probably have tears running down your face, but they're, they're things that you needed to hear then, but you didn't have the, the experience, you know, and now you have that, that knowledge of time and, um, and just hearing those gentle words to yourself helps you heal some of that trigger so that you won't have that trigger later. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, the mom told me afterwards uh, that um, the little guy, we were working on uh, AAC device trials. It's a, I don't know if you're familiar with them, Lisa, it's communication device trials. And uh, he needed uh a lot of assistance, and we had just gotten him equipped with a uh, an iPad speech generating device program. And his favorite thing to do was he would brush his fingers across the screen until he came to um, the Nerf gun, and um, he would say "shoot," and then he would pick who in his family he wanted us to shoot, and he would 
love to Nerf gun shoot his little sister who was just learning to crawl. And on my last session there, um, and and, and his um, full-time aide was the one that would actually pull the Nerf gun trigger. And she got me, she got me good right in the stomach, man. (laughs) He was like, shoot, Miss Michelle. And I like super dramatic fall to the ground. And I'm like, oh, I'm going down, man. (laughs) And, and um, And it was a hot pink Nerf gun because we tried to find ones that were um, critically vision impairment friendly for him. And so it was um, bright pink and black and it was great. And uh, she, I ran into her, I don't know how much later. And she said they found a little girl down the street that um, asked for his Nerf gun if he could, she could play with it because she remembered it and, uh, and how much healing it brought her. And I was like, what, what a beautiful moment. But in the valley, I couldn't see that, but that is now I have some go back and choose to dwell on that. Also, I would win an Oscar for my performance with a nerf gun. I'm just mm-hmm. saying. Yes. <laughs> I love okay. it. So, so what about our colleagues when we see them in in the grief cycle? Because one of our one of our code of ethics is that we have to report peers and members from other professionals when we see that they are struggling to perform their professional clinical skills because of a outside variable, right? Um, or like a, not maybe not outside variable, like a um, severe um, uh, neglect of duty, right? And I don't ever want a individual to get so consumed by their grief that they can't function, that they can't do the profession that they love. So how do we, how do we help each other and how do we help our parents that are working through the process of their little one going from palliative care to hospice? Right. Well, one of the things I I recently heard a, a psychologist on BBC, Dr. Radha, and she talked about the five C's and I've added more C's onto it. But this is a suggestion that, you know, you can share with people is, okay, if if you guys have a pen, I would, you know, get it out to write this down. One is um, when there's hard times like grief or COVID or, you know, lots of stressful things going in people's lives, this first C is control. What you can control, you control what time you get up. You know, you can control that you're going to wear a mask on your face. You're going to, you know, take some time to take care of yourself. So think of the things you can control. The second one is care. Take care of yourself. Make sure people are getting exercise, sleep, eating healthy, you know, finding that kind of balance, having a good, you know, support system. And then consistency. What are things that you consistently do each day, you know, to make things better for you? Um, getting up at eight o'clock or getting up at, you know, going to bed at certain times, try to keep some kind of a schedule, putting creativity in your life. Creativity is really healing for the brain. So that's why you see now people are doing do your own projects at home or art projects or, you know, taking out walls or whatever, you know, creativity is a really, you know, healing thing to do. Um, Compassion, having compassion is, you know, about what's going on. And, and of course, you know, in your line of work, there's so much compassion, but compassion for yourself and being able to say, you know what, I need to take a mental health day off and really encourage people to take care of themselves because if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't take care of other people well. And so that's vital. And the other thing is, is having calm moments, which is like time for prayer, meditation, rest. These are the ones that I added on. And then I put connections I mean, connections are so important and I'm encouraging people to reach out to five people a day to just say, Hey, I'm thinking of you. I know this is a really hard time. You've gone through this. And one of the things to, you know, when you've gone through a loss, the worst question is, so how are you doing? It's like, Oh no, don't ask that. So how are you doing today? Just make it right now. How are you doing this minute? Because when it's global, you know, it just really is painful to hear that, you know, and, and it often people, when they've gone through loss, when that question comes so often and people want you just to say fine, but the reality is you're not fine. So we can't pretend. 
So the other C is community, being part of a community, whatever that is for you, church, you know, square dancing, um, Zoom, Zoom dancing, you know, or whatever, being part of something. And then I put Christ in there because I really, you know, having that morning time with him, it's really what's helps a lot of people keep centered. And then to know the last C of mine is conquer. We're going to conquer this. We're going to see those mountain types tops again, and you will, you know, be able to heal. Yes, it will never feel the same and you will never, you know, um, can go back to having that person there, but you can put up rituals in your life to be able to have them be part of your life forever. So yeah, those C's, those 10 C's, you know, the first five from um, England and then the the other five from America. (laughs) So yes. Um, I I, I like the the creativity one um, strikes true. We have done a lot of home projects. I've had comedic, outcomes to add another C in the mix. Ooh, yes. And um, uh, sometimes we've had to call in backup because <laughs> it hasn't gone so well. Yes. But you know, we've tried and that's been bringing, it has also trickled over to helping the community because we've had to call an electrician, we've had to call a plumber. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> oh, I'm not as handy as I like to think that I am, but my husband's very patient and lets me kind of figure that out on my own. <laughs> so, like, <sighs> no, this is, this is key. Um, y'all, there are some, some great resources that, um, uh, I have signed up for, for having those moments of calm. Um, mm-hmm. one, of, one of the good ones for my husband, he likes the daily stoic. He's, he's really a huge fan of Marcus Aurelius and, and Christian went to West Point. So he's like military history guy, like all the way who are right. But, uh, the daily stoic he really enjoys and and um i truly enjoy my daily devotion and i can tell when i fall off of my jesus calling um i I fall off the wagon right like Mm -hmm. when i don't read it every morning because i feel not fully prepared for the day and and one huge difference that my husband and I made several years ago when I, I have a tendency to take on more tasks than are theoretically feasible to conquer. But you know, I think that I can, right. And one of the big transitions that we made was waking up early before the kids and simply having coffee together every morning. And those few minutes of us just talking about what was on our plate for the day, reviewing the must-do list versus the to-do with my husband has made a huge impact. And we've done this probably for like five years now. And that has been absolutely wonderful for helping me make sure that I am fully prepared for the day. So, um, also normally at least once a week, dog jumps on him and spills coffee on him. And if I didn't point out where the coffee dribbles would be, he'd go to work like that. So it kind of works out pretty well for him too. (laughs) So, okay. Those, but those are fantastic strategies, um, for realigning. Now y'all, when you're out in the field and you are driving between patients' houses, because a lot of us are doing this in the car. A lot of us are, um, we're, you don't get a quiet moment because you leave the house and you're either catching a subway to the next patient's house or you're fighting for trap, like fighting in traffic. And then you have like the triggers of traffic and, and that person cuts you off. And why is this person driving 20 miles below the speed limit and rawr, and you can feel the crescendo of emotions happening. That's when you take that deep breath ready, calm, and then go into the next patient's house. Because these patients that we're talking about, they really need us to fully address our therapeutic presence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how do we, do you have additional specific tips for taking care of self or are those lumped in with the 10? Well, each person knows what, you know, if you can, 
have someone you can talk with about this. It's really important to, you know, so have your accountability person, someone, you know, or a team that you can say, you know what, I am feeling this way. You know, what I've done in the past to self-soothe is not so healthy. I want to find really healthy ways to soothe. So, you know, everyone needs to have their own toolbox on what is going to help them. And so I actually have patients write down, you know, what is a healthy way for you to self-soothe and feel good? What makes you feel good? Some ladies will be like getting my toes done, you know, I need to set that up and get, you know, pedicure. And then some, it's like, I need a warm bath with lots of smelling. Some it's gardening, some it's doing artwork. And, you know, we, one area of your brain, you think of what area of your brain you use so much. Like an engineer would be using one area of his brain all the time. I assign them to do artwork. I'm like, you need to have a little more balance in your brain. So let's get you over here and do something else and look at that brain. Like, okay. So, you know, think about in your toolbox, what makes you feel good? What do you need to have in there? What feels the best? And sometimes it's, you know, listening to certain, like, when I'm stressed, I put on Andre Bocelli as loud as I can handle it. And I'm like moving around my kitchen, having a great time, you know, <laughs> it makes me feel good. And I love his energy. And so it's like, oh, yeah. So you each have to have a toolbox and in that toolbox in your mind or on a piece of paper in your purse, you know, or in your bag. So you can turn to that and say, okay, I need some Andrew Bocelli or, hey, I need to listen to some Madonna. I don't know. <laughs> what do you, you know, and, and sometimes early morning, I'm like, okay, I'm putting my Bible app on and I'll listen to different verses that give me peace. And so, or I'll call my best friend and say, I need you to just tell me it's going to be okay. And even sometimes at night, I'll say to my husband, you know what, honey, I just need you to hold me and tell me five times slowly that, it, that I'm safe and then it's going to be okay. And he'll do that. And I, I just breathe that in and I'll have tears in my eyes. And I know that I'm safe, but we're in such an unsafe, un, in such a chaotic world, you know, right now that when I hear him and I'm wrapped in his arms and he's telling me that, I, I just breathe in that. It just feels so good. And so finding what you can put in your toolbox, you know, it's, it's vital. Hmm. Hmm. Yes journaling, you know, singing, cooking, you know, it's, you can, I could come up with a huge list and, and send it to you, but um, it just, everyone has their own. And, and that is key to be able to tap into that and have it on a list, have it written down if you need to, because when we're under stress, sometimes it's like, I don't know what's going to take, help me feel better. That's just horrible. But, you know, there are things that do make us feel better. I, I have found that even within those those tasks, I have to break it down one step further for me. So when I am overwhelmed, I weed in the garden. It's something about the act of pulling out and clearing out that helps offset the um, the overwhelm. And it was it was brisk this weekend and I was in that mode. So instead we deep clean the house. I even dusted the ceiling fans because that's where I was in the world. I was in the anger stage of a grief cycle. Yes. So bring it out the Swiffer and like getting it right. But when I need to, when I need to focus on the fostering and the healing, that's when I need to plant in my garden. Yeah. And so um, which again, that very patient, Mr. Dawson of mine, I'm like, I'm going to Lowe's and he's like, okay. <laughs> and I come back with like an SUV fill. I once somehow managed to fix six whiskey barrels in like half whiskey barrels in my SUV with like, I think 20, 30 pounds of dirt and, um, blueberry bushes to go in the whiskey barrels. And the Lowe's guy was like, honey, it's not going to fit. And I said, do not honey me. I am not your honey. And then I got it all in there. So like, but that's, you, you know, that is my, um, ability to self-care. Actually, when that little boy passed, I was, um, up there, um, weeding big time because I had to pull through it because we literally pulling, um, 
Okay. All right. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's sweet. Look, I take my breath away. Um, mm. So when we're called into working with a pediatric patient who's under palliative care, but the interprofessional practice team knows that it's a matter of time before they're moving to hospice. Um, and I say this because I had this one sweet baby girl on my caseload and we all know that she's aspirating. Um, it, it is what it is. And, and we, the family does not want to add, um, put baby girl through any additional surgeries than she has to go through. Um, so the family's decided to uh, not add a feeding tube, which is the right and one that I completely and totally support, right? So we're continuing to do oral pleasure feedings and baby girl is progressing and not regressing. It's a miracle. Mm. However, concurrently, we're having breakthrough seizures. We're having um, uh, some neurologic activity uh, that I've heard described as like neurologic storms. Like it's it's just a matter of time, right? And um, I know that one day there will be the conversation that we need to go to hospice. So knowing that, knowing that that is coming, how do we, how do I prep myself? And then with that knowledge, how do I prep the family? Because I know eventually it will be on me to say, all right, now I know we want to get as much quality of life pleasure feeding in as we can, but this is no longer quality of life pleasure feeding. This is difficult. This is hard. This is not intermittent micro aspirating events. This is imminent danger. So what tools do I need? And for myself and for them. Well, one of the things you just had, the way you presented that was so beautiful, you know, and, and know that they're going to need time to think about this, you know, and, and I would say, you know, why don't you think about this, however long you think that they should think about it. And I really want to be able to talk with you about it. And do you have other people in your life that you can talk to about it? Because, you know, I know this is one of the most difficult things you're going to have to, you know, go through in your life. And I want you to be prepared for it. So I want you to make sure you have people that are there to help you through this. That is something I would say to the family. Um, you know, they're, of course, they've had some time to prepare, but yet they're still in that that little shock you know, mode, like, I don't know, is this really going to happen? Is there still going to be a miracle? Um, and so then, then they will probably have some anger. And if they have anger, being able to say to them, you know, I understand that you're really angry about this. And just acknowledge their feelings, you know, because when we don't acknowledge people and their feelings, that's when it's really painful for them. And so acknowledge their feelings, you know, see what team members you can pull in, you know, kind of see in each family based on cultural, you know, norms and within that family, asking them who kind of makes the decisions in the house or how do you want this to go? And, you know, because sometimes it's grandma that makes that decision or it's grandpa or it's the great aunt, you know, based on cultural issues. And so, or it's, you know, it's the dad or the mom, but being able to, you know, you know, depending on the child too, being able to kind of navigate that can be pretty challenging based on the family structure. Um, and then for you guys, you know, continue to acknowledge your feelings and that it's really difficult and not ignore that it's, you know, don't sweep it under the, don't, don't just compartmentalize your grief because what happens is, is when you do that, you have a tsunami of grief reaction because every time we don't deal with our grief completely, it does come up and it's like one will attach to the next, to the next, to the next. And then when, you know, out of the blue, that trigger happens, you might have, a, I call it a tsunami reaction to, you know, a 
situation. It could be anxiety. If you don't deal with it, it could turn into anxiety within you or depression. And so really, you know, working through grief is, is vital um, because it does turn into other things if we don't address it. Um, I've had the tsunami and um, it was the most bizarre reaction that like after I had it, I had to step back and look at myself and I was like, what the heck just happened to me? Um, and it was, it was residuals from my ex-marriage. He always told me that all I was worth was a beat up dusty old van that uh, he didn't need to spend any money on me to get me a good quality car, which that is the most convoluted thought process in the entire history of processes. And I actually really like fans, but when Christian and I, I mean, I left happily remarried when Christian and I were looking at getting vehicles to start a family, he goes, why don't we get a van? And out of nowhere in front of his families, I was like, I am not getting a, well, my family was Navy Department of Defense, so I'll spell it, spare you the colorful adjectives, but there were adjectives used. I'm not kidding about it, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, I'm going to go outside for a minute. He was like, yeah, okay, baby, let me let me know if you want me to join you. I was like, yeah. And then afterwards, he, he came out and he was like, so what just happened? And we had to talk about it. And I mean, I had to explain the thought process and the trauma and, and, uh, and, and, you know, he, we, we worked through it, um, but he had no way of knowing that that was a potential trigger. I had no way of knowing the depth of the anger and hurt that I had yet to recover from. And that tsunami could have been avoided had I addressed the underlying components. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and that was, that was a process to work through. Yes. And then that, that example I said of the adult, you now talking to that woman that you were then and speaking truth to her, that would continue you that would continue the healing for you in that, that van story. Mm -hmm. So you probably totally think I'm a fruitcake by now because of all of that. Oh, no, no, no. I, I think the way you responded was actually very healthy. You connected the dots and you're like, okay, this is, um, you're calling it out instead of sweeping it under the rug. And that's what's healthy, calling it out, owning it, healing it, walking towards it. Don't walk away. You know, when we have something traumatic, you know, honor that trauma and heal it so you can say goodbye to it. You can keep part of it if you want to, but you know, it, it's super important. Good job. Okay. So, so what, what else do we as the caregivers need to know when we're helping families? If, if you could sit us down one by one and say, please know this. And, and also sometimes the siblings are there and they're present and they're old enough. They may not fully grasp that their sibling is, is um, failing because sometimes, I mean, I've got one little guy that's in a hospital bed in his house and his high school brother knows that he's battling respiratory failure from X, Y, and Z. So what do we need to know? Well, one of the things that helps, you know, I went through a substantial you know, loss in my own life. My daughter was killed um, in a car accident or she was struck while riding her bike. And um, one of the things that helped for me when we were in the hospital is when people would come in, someone did a ritual where they actually painted her hand and then put it on a piece of paper. And then each person in the room could paint her hand and put it on a piece of paper and take it with them. And that was so healing for, you know, people that were in the room because it was, you know, kind of like a last gift that she was able to give. And so I don't know if there's some kind of ritual that you could put into your work. I mean, it's, 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 yes, it's a little bit out of your scope, but it's, it's not because <laughs> you're part of the story. And so think about what kind of ritual you can put into 
because it really is a family event, even though this one person is your patient. When you have other people in the room watching and being part of that, if you can put in some kind of beauty, I don't know what that looks like. But um, I love you on an AAC device. Hmm. Getting their voice captured on it. Yes. The ability to say, I love you on an AAC device or modeling that back for them if they can't vocalize it yet themselves. That is profound. Yes. That's beautiful. I think rituals are really important. And so being able to do something special like that is, they will never forget that. And you won't forget because you're part of their story. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I went to grad school and I was like, I'm going to be a speech therapist and I'm going to teach people to swallow and blah. And I had like all these naive ideas. And then I got out in the field and like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And it has been really, really humbling to discover how little I actually know, but how much heart I can bring. And to watch my clinical skills grow. And yet I feel like everywhere I've been, I've left a little bit of my heart behind, but gained a little bit of somebody else's in the process, if that makes sense. I had a beautiful moment um, where the mom, we were working through her grief cycle because she was told she would never conceive. She had lupus and other autoimmune disease, um, high blood pressure, gestational diabetes. Um, the little guy was born with ASD and I was there to walk them through their grief cycle of helping him find his diagnosis. And um, I got him started on AAC, got him started on a first few spontaneous words, and then my season in their life was done. He transitioned to the public schools and he didn't need me anymore. He was good to go for the next therapist. And, uh, you know, I worked with him once or twice a week for, you know, two, two years. And then, um, then you're, then you're gone, you're done, right? And uh, last summer we were on the playground because there's a there's a, a really really cool brew pub with a hangar. Um, it's like at an airport hangar, like a little tiny hangar, and um, uh, so you can go and have like you know cold pint, great vegan pizza. And then across the street is a playground, and they have an adaptive uh, baseball team that plays there. And so I, we had the boys on the playground and we're like climbing all over the equipment and, um, and the adaptive baseball team was out playing. And, um, this face came right up to the fence and he looked at me and he made eye contact and he waved and he smiled. And I was like, I know, I know this face. It had been almost three years since I had seen that little boy. And there he was as if, I mean, looking right at me and just smiling and waving and he didn't say anything. And I, there I am like scanning the crowds where, where's mom and the baseball stadium couldn't find him. And, you know, the coach call, comes over and steers him back into the game and you know, having children, it's like we're hurting stray cats half the time, by the way. And then I have to turn around and track down mine and go on about our business. But um, I ran into the mom Subsequently, like we, I ran into her at Michael's when the pandemic let up and we could go get our arts and crafts to support the creativity part of the self-care. And uh, she had fun with him, with her and I told her the, the, what happened and he was just smiling and he goes, hi, I saw you. And I was like, oh my God, he's talking in sentences. <laughs> it was just to have been there in that moment when they were going through their valley to he saw me and he remembered me and it mattered. And then to see them again and, and he like gave me a sentence. And I was like, this is just, ah, that was, that was great. That was great. And that's yeah. a perfect example of you being part of their book, you know, and you were part of their book when they were, you know, having difficulty, but you turn a few pages later and look at, you know, he's mm-hmm. talking to you. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. So 
Thank you both so much for coming on today, folks. I know this was a heavy one to speak, but here's the truth of the matter. We have to be willing to speak about the heavy issues like grief, because if we don't, then we can never allow the true healing in ourselves and for our patients and their caregivers to begin. So take it slow, take it steady, take care of yourself, follow the 10 C's so that you can be the best to take care of those that we are called to serve. So Monty, Lisa, um, Monty, can you talk to us about the Abbott's Child Grief Camp? If we have a little one who does go through the loss and their siblings want to come to the camp or the, the caregivers' families want to come, can you, can you tell us about Abbott's Child? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> before I do that, I just want to thank you guys. I've been sitting here quietly listening and enjoying every minute uh, because you both reflect uh, a whole level of caregiving that I guess for me from the outside, it just warms my heart, brings tears to my eyes to hear people who are seeing so much more than a job in what your profession is. <laughs> Uh, you are speaking into lives in ways that, that change them for the better. And so I just want to thank you for that. Uh, and really the things you've talked about are exactly what Abba's Child Camps are all about. Uh, helping kids to, to escape what is oftentimes a family that is, and when I say escape the family, I shouldn't put it that way, but a sudden trauma in a family throws everyone into chaos. All, all that they have known is suddenly changed. And oftentimes they find it hard to talk to each other and the uh, tensions rise and anxiety is high. And so for a child uh, of camp age to be able to come to a place where there's all kinds of fun activity and creative opportunity and to meet other kids who are going through similar things and to find loving caring people like Lisa and other facilitators that we work with to lead them in conversation, to remember their loved one and to, to laugh and to cry and to play. I mean, this is all part of the processing picture that is so important. And so you've been hitting the nail on the head all the way through. Uh, Abba's Child focuses on camp age children, uh, depending on where it's taking place. We probably don't go much younger than nine and probably we're much older than 15. So sometimes we'll do age, a camp will choose to do two and they'll do maybe nine to 11 and then 12 to 15 in, in a separate group. Uh, but that's all can be found on the website. Uh, we are starting a family event that will take place over a, a weekend and uh, we hope to spread those through to a variety of locations but we also see the need for families to process together and to be able to separate and talk with other dads or other children in smaller groups to process separately and together so that's developing that's coming um, for more information, you can go to our uh, webpage, which is www.abbas-child, and I think .net, .com, .org, all of them work. Uh, so that's a place where you can donate or get information. Uh, certainly contact, you know, if you have questions, we're, we're I guess, to fill the story in, uh, Abba's Child has been part of the program at the camp where I was the director now for 15 years. But this year, we've set up a an independent 501c3, and we're beginning the process to spread it to other camps. So we're actually, everything's growing, everything's building right now. And, you know, keep going to that website, and you'll be able to contact me and contact me I'll, and you want to talk to Lisa, I'll get you in touch with Lisa and we'll try to help in any way we can. Thank you. This is, uh, this is what folks need, especially after the year that we've had. So thank you. Thank you for giving hope and funness because kids still need camp and the ability to laugh. 
while they're healing. So thank you. Okay, everybody, as always, thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to follow us on at First Bite Instagram and the at First Bite Facebook page. Erin swears I don't have to say at in front of things, but I can't help it. I'm old. Um, and always, we, as always, we are extra appreciative of when you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. So everybody out there, thank you. Remember, you can have grace in your grief and... Uh, Keep us posted. Let us know what we can do to help. Bye, y'all. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.